Taiwan receives the most disinformation spread by foreign governments globally, according to a recent report from a University of Gothenburg in Sweden. The university conducts this study annually, and Taiwan has topped the list for the last nine years. The most recent incident among the flood of fake news inundating the nation is one that claims that DPP politicians are just like Ukrainian parliamentarians and millionaires who fled their country when war broke out. Whether or not that actually originated from China, Premier Su Zhenchang didn't bother responding to it when asked by a reporter Sunday. The writing on this image claims that 37 Ukrainian parliamentarians and nearly 100 tycoons have fled their nation. Below the image are photos of Taiwan's pro-independence Green Camp politicians, including President Tsai Ing-wen and Premier Su Zhengchang. Its implication is clear, that Taiwanese politicians who are calling to resist China to protect Taiwan would also flee if China attacked. Disinformation about the Russo-Ukrainian war is everywhere, and even Taiwan is being targeted. Every nation in the world sees Taiwan on the front line. We are well prepared for these kinds of disinformation attacks. After I met with the European parliamentary delegation, visitors from other countries said they wanted to exchange experiences with us, as they all said Taiwan does very well in this area. As for all these so-called fleeing politicians, such allegations are not worth refuting. Premier Su had a grave look. Faced with this disinformation war, he didn't bother refuting this piece of disinformation, only because there is so much fake news flooding Taiwan these days. According to a recent report released by the University of Gothenburg in Sweden, the top three countries in the world that receive the most disinformation spread by foreign governments are Taiwan, Latvia and Palestine. Taiwan has topped the list in the university's ongoing study for nine consecutive years. Most of the suspicious ones are clear to the Taiwanese people that they come from China, whose aim is to stir up all-consuming internal political struggles and make us doubt our own democratic system. It's important to see that this is actually a part of asymmetric warfare and that it can't be blocked out. Zeng says China is clever at creating disinformation to harass Taiwan and that Taiwan can draw from the experience of the war in Ukraine to become not only an important player in asymmetric warfare, but also fight back if it can learn to identify false information. The U.S. has imposed economic sanctions on Russia for its invasion of Ukraine, and Taiwanese chipmaker TSMC and South Korea Samsung have followed suit, suspending the export of their semiconductors to Russia. An article in the Wall Street Journal says without TSMC's high-end chips, Russia's efforts at developing advanced weaponry, along with 5G and AI, will be thwarted, as it'll be very hard to find other supply channels. Russia, as the world's second-largest arms exporter, will lose an important source of income if its weaponry can't be produced smoothly. Let's hear from a local expert. The main products Russia uses include core computing processes for military use, microprocessors and more importantly memory. There will be a certain degree of impact on the military industry and even electronics industries relating to people's livelihoods. 
When the war ends, everything will bring the world back to so-called normality. Russia will hope it will be able to export their things, and the big semiconductor companies in the West will still hope to continue doing business with Russia. So trade retaliation from both sides is harmful to both of them. In 2020, Taiwan's chip exports to Russia amounted to approximately 210 million U.S. dollars. Even though Russia may turn to Chinese chip makers for help, there aren't many like TSMC that can produce large volumes of high-end chips. The analyst also says that Russia is a major exporter of inert gases and precious metals, and it's unlikely that it won't do business with other nations. In addition, post-war reconstruction will see Russia in urgent need of TSMC's chips. The economic and trade cooperation between the two sides is unlikely to change in the long term, the analyst says. A donation drive for Ukraine organized by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs came to a close on Friday, but the resulting 20,000 boxes of donated goods still needed to be sorted and packed. This required significant manpower. On Sunday morning, some 400 volunteers that included kids and foreign affairs officials showed up at the ministry's underground garage to help. Volunteers busily carry boxes of goods to the parking area in the basement of the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. Some of the boxes are loaded directly onto trucks. Others have to be carried across the parking area to the exit to then be loaded on the street. This was the final stage before shipment. Kids and their grandparents came down to help. Ukraine and its refugees will be able to sleep as we're giving them food and clothing. We check the expiration dates. As for individually packaged medicine, we need to make sure deliquescence has not occurred during the process of packaging. These kids got up at 6 in the morning to help their pharmacist mum count the meds and put them in order. Volunteers from the Tsuji Foundation, altogether 400 strong, gave up their free Sunday to come here to help sort and organise the goods. In this way, more than 20,000 boxes of goods strewn on the floor of the parking garage could be sent to Ukraine. Some people came with their families, carrying things they wanted to donate and bringing their kids. I'd ask them, what are you doing here? They'd say, I want to help Ukraine. I think this is what makes Taiwan so precious. Its goodness and love are its treasures. Kids came of their own accord. People brought goods. Some even wrote the words love and peace on the boxes. The Director General of the Ministry's West Asian and African Affairs Department was also on hand to help. He said over the past 10 days, many of his colleagues came to serve as volunteers whenever they had free time. Even the minister's parking space had been used as a place to store the goods temporarily. My co-workers have to work from Monday to Friday, but they still came down here to help when they have free time. More co-workers showed up on the weekend to help pack. Even our minister and deputy minister's cars were parked outside so that their parking spaces could be used. The basement offers protection from the elements. 
All told, since the start of the drive, more than 2,000 people have come here to help. As the packing efforts neared completion, the goods, along with the love of their donors, were packed into boxes that'll be delivered to Ukrainian refugees. They'll surely feel the warmth from Taiwan. Taiwan reported on Sunday three local cases of COVID and a staggering 118 imported cases. While the pandemic is coming under control domestically, the number of COVID cases originating abroad has surpassed 100 for two consecutive days now. Taiwan has already reduced its quarantine period to 10 days, and it may once again shorten it in the near future, despite the high numbers of imported cases. An expert says restrictions will likely be further relaxed if the authorities can cap locally transmitted cases at 20 a day in the coming two weeks. Our goal is to gradually ease restrictions, and that means shortening quarantine periods. We need to look at future developments. If a large-scale infection breaks out in the community and our medical institutions are unable to handle it, we should consider making adjustments accordingly. Chen Xiuxi, a public health professor at National Taiwan University, says if locally transmitted cases can be kept at no more than 20 a day, restrictions will continue to relax. Meanwhile, Huang Liming, the superintendent of NTU Children's Hospital, says the deciding factor will be whether hospitals and long-term care institutions have the capacity to meet the demand of medical care involved. It'll take a few more weeks to see whether or not Taiwan should further ease COVID restrictions. Long-term care is a phrase that often conjures up images of nursing homes and cold, impersonal medical institutions. But long-term care doesn't have to look like that. In the mountains of Taichung, a small community is pioneering a different kind of care for the elderly that lets people age with dignity right at home. Carers in the program provide personalized attention and everyday support. Their care is so effective, it's brought a pneumonia patient on his deathbed back to health. In this first part of a two-part series, we go to this small mountain village to see how it all works. Our Sunday special report. <laughs> For five days a week, Lolu Village in Taichung's Heping District comes alive with a friendly bickering of older adults. Their families are busy with work and are unable to take care of them. So these dementia patients live at Plahan, a co-living space in the village. Plahan was founded in the summer of 2019 by former Taichung deputy mayor Ling Yiying, who had directed an elder care foundation for 10 years. After leaving office, she visited Lolu village and was dismayed by what she saw. Of the village's 1,300 inhabitants, only seven were using the government's long-term care services. I found that there were very few caregivers in the village, but everywhere I looked, there were older adults, disadvantaged people, and people with disabilities. Lolu village is nestled in the mountains of Taichung's Heping district. Most villagers make a living from cultivating persimmons, with a few others growing citrus and guavas. 
after many years toiling the land, many people end up developing health problems. We had to separate people with mild and severe conditions. Those with severe conditions were sent to a care institution outside, and those with milder conditions would just go next door and look after one another. People in need were either sent for care or looked after by others in the community. Other options were limited amid financial hardship, youth migration, limited adoption of long-term care resources, and a severe shortage of care professionals. In 2018, there were only five caregivers in Lolu, all of whom were from out of town. Amid the shortage of labor, funds and information, and an abundance of people in need, Lin Yi Ying contemplated how to best help these forgotten older adults age in peace. To start off, she put herself to work in the community as a caregiver. I've been involved in long-term care for more than 20 years, and I've always thought there is more we ought to do, but I wasn't too familiar with the actual on-site work. Since I was going to get a new job, I thought being a caregiver would be best, because then I'd be able to be on the ground and eventually build on that. Her work included minding patients' everyday needs, such as going to the toilet. Having a former city official move to the countryside to do this grueling work raised a few eyebrows among locals. When she arrived, we were shocked. Why would such a high-ranking government official come here with her entire family? We were suspicious that she was just doing it for show. Lin Yiying threw herself into caregiving. <laughs> through her actions, she convinced locals to go through training and become caregivers themselves. In the second half of 2019, she founded the Plahan Co Living Space. Its name comes from the Atayal word for bonfire and prosperity. The name represents her hope of turning Lolu into a warm and prosperous village. At Plahan, Lin Yiying trialed different kinds of long-term care plans. For instance, people with dementia were brought to the space to spend the day together. Over here, we don't want to say that we're taking care of them. It's more like we're living together. There are many chores, such as sweeping the floors and cooking, that we all do together. We cook together. Helping around the house and being active in the community can slow down the progression of dementia. To support older adults living at home, Lin Yiying's team developed special rehabilitation programs. Today, two nurses have come to visit Luo Yulan, who lives on her own. Luo recently became injured after taking a fall at home. After she was discharged from the hospital, Flahan helped her with recovery. The special rehab program gets the patient to focus on a concrete goal. Then, it's all about determination and commitment. For Luo, her goal is to recover her mobility. At Plahan, it's pretty special. Very few institutions are willing to assign people with a nursing background to home care. At the beginning, nurses had to go to Luo's house almost every day. They also had to coordinate shifts and be in touch at all times via an online group. Their help allowed Luo set off on a tough journey toward the goal of being able to walk again. I would grab onto the side of the bed and try stand up. It was so bad. It felt like all the blood was rushing down. So painful. We gave her a peanut ball. Regular yoga balls are round, but we gave her a very big peanut ball. 
That way, she could step on it and bounce back to build up muscle. 教你这个足背伸张运动，对你一上来，二下去。Members of staff accompany Law on her daily exercises. 伤口好了，会走路了。Once the wounds heal and she's able to walk, she can support herself and cook for herself. She will feel that she's living with dignity. With help from the Kanti Matlahan, Law was able to recover her mobility. As her condition gradually improved, she required less and less help from caregivers. Also in Pahan's experimental rehab program is a patient who needs round-the-clock care. Jiang Yegan Mei is in her 80s and Pahan attends to her 24 hours a day. After she went through a surgical amputation, her family decided to have her recover at home. But due to work reasons, her family could not provide sufficient care. Plahan's objective is to improve Zhang Ye's condition so that she does not require 24-hour help. This goal has been achieved before with another member of the community, a man named Lin Bo Shan. We follow visiting physician Fu Huaguo to Lin Bo Shan's home in Mihu village. Thanks to a cooperative venture between Plahan and Dr. Fu, Lin Boshan became the first care receiver to leave behind his days of round-the-clock care. Grandpa Boshan used to have a tracheotomy tube and a nasogastric tube. When he returned home after being in severe condition at the hospital, Plahan took care of him 24 hours a day. In 2019, a bout of pneumonia sent Lin Boshan to the hospital. After more than a year in and out of medical centers and care homes, he insisted on returning to his home in the village. When I visited him at the institution, he was attached to a ventilator and had a nasogastric tube. Back then, he couldn't even speak. I was in the hospital for a year. I couldn't even leave my hospital bed because I was attached to a ventilator. It was very tiring. I couldn't cry, and I couldn't even smile. I was in critical state, and I saw many other older men pass away. I saw them go one by one. I used to think, it'll be my turn to go soon. Lin Boshan was fully aware of his condition, and after lying on a hospital bed for a year and seeing the end draw nearer and nearer, he insisted on spending his final days at home. He was unable to speak and had to use his weakened hands to communicate through writing. I told my children, if I'm going to die, I'd rather die at home. I want to pass on my own bed and unplug the respirator myself. I don't want to do that anywhere else. Lin Boshan's family contacted Plahan, which created a care plan so that he could live alone at home with the help of doctors, nurses, and carers. We held a meeting here back when he was still in the hospital. I discussed with the carers whether we should go learn how to extract phlegm. Nobody had considered we'd be caring for patients with such severe conditions. I remember the evening he came under my care. It was just after he left the hospital, so we had to extract phlegm and whatnot. Really, we're all quite nervous. One of the first things they did was train Lin Bo Shan to swallow once again. Then he started eating liquid foods. 
After one month of round-the-clock care, he was able to remove his nasogastric tube. After three months, he removed his breathing tube. From lying sick in bed to standing up and walking around, Lin Shan amazed his carers with what was possible. Seeing him like that, I felt really glad. We were the ones caring for him. We all felt a sense of achievement. Lin Shan no longer needs attention 24 hours a day. For now, Akara checks up on him for one hour every day, and a doctor visits him just once a month. Though he had originally returned home to die, he ended up returning home to live life and to witness the changing seasons. Plahan has found success after success helping older adults with its experimental care plans, but even so, the foundation has had trouble securing government funding. Join us next week for part two of this report. Magnitude 5.1 earthquake struck Nanto County Saturday night at 11.23 p.m. Its epicenter was in Zhushan Township and it had a depth of just 15.1 kilometers. Nanto, Yingling, Jiayi and Zhanghua counties all experienced tremors with a maximum magnitude of four. The Central Weather Bureau Seismological Center reported that before the 5.1 earthquake struck, there were two foreshocks and the quake was followed by several aftershocks. A total of seven tremors had been observed by 2 a.m. Since there are no fault lines near the epicenter, experts believe that a possible cause for the earthquake were ruptures in a fracture zone. Let's hear from the CWB. Before this magnitude 5.1 earthquake, two earthquakes with a scale of over three were detected. So these earthquakes were categorized as foreshocks. And in our follow-up observations, there were four perceptible aftershocks. In our judgment, this earthquake is mainly connected to a local fracture zone and is unlikely related to any fault line. The CWB says aftershocks with a magnitude of 3 to 4 can be expected in the next 5 to 7 days. It urges the public to be vigilant.